Welcome to Jogcast, objectively good, with Claire Breverton, Ian Harrison, Josh Hayes, Eddie Kenson, Ian Morrison, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, August 2017 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Ian Harrison, and joining me in the studio today are Monique. Hello, Monique. Hi. And Charlie. Hi. Hi. So, in the show this time, uh, we have Monique interviewing Dr. Katrina Jackman about adventures in the outer solar system, Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton taking a look at what's happening in the night sky, but first, of course, we will have the news, which this month is being read by Josh. Hello. In the news this week, the moon is wetter than we thought, and space salads. But first, let's discuss a decade of citizen science. Last month marked 10 years since the launch of Galaxy Zoo, a project which invites members of the public to classify galaxies in images taken by robotic telescopes around the world. The project was launched on the 11th of July 2007 and had immediate success through the discovery of a new type of object called a quasar ionisation echo. Named Hanny's Vorwerp after its discovery Hanny van Arkel, a Dutch primary school teacher, this was the first of many objects identified by the project. The count now stands at over 125 million galaxies identified, with a huge range of characteristics being seen. This output is far greater than any identification algorithm could produce, and the introductory paper has had over 750 citations. Among many interesting studies conducted by Galaxy Zoo was one in galaxy rotation. Participants were asked to say whether face-on galaxies were rotating clockwise or anticlockwise, Assuming that galaxy alignment was random, the researchers were expecting roughly equal numbers of each, but found an excess of anti-clockwise rotation. The researchers investigated to see if there was a bias by showing participants the same images, but mirrored, and found that there was still a bias towards incorrect anti-clockwise identification. When correcting for this, it was found that spiral galaxies which are near to each other have a tendency to rotate in the same direction. This type of research would not have been possible without the Galaxy Zoo. In fact, the citizen science employed by Galaxy Zoo has proven to be so successful that it spawned the creation of the Citizen Science Alliance, which runs the Zooniverse project, which aims to bring the power of crowdsourcing to as many areas of science as possible. Zooniverse includes the ongoing project of Galaxy Zoo, but projects also exist to detect near-Earth asteroids, find exoplanets, and discover new pulsars. They have even branched out beyond astrophysics, and the power of the public is now being used to count giraffes and elephants, transcribe Shakespeare's handwritten documents, and identify parts of cells. Here's to another, even more successful decade of citizen science. This next contribution was written by Tony Newell. The moon is wetter than we thought. Measurements from an Indian lunar orbiter have suggested that the levels of water ice below the moon's crust are much higher than previously thought. Launched in 2008 and operated until 2009, the Chandrayaan-1 spacecraft has revealed that whilst the majority of the lunar surface has only background levels of water, there are some regions with an excess when compared to this background. Further study of these areas shows that all of them are associated with material ejected from below the surface by a volcano known as pyroclastic deposits. Since these rocks were formed below the surface, they can be used to infer the composition of the lunar mantle without having to drill down through the crust. The high level of water seen in these pyroclastic rocks is thought to mean that there is more water under the surface of the moon than previously thought. 
This has led to some discussion of further manned missions to the moon to collect samples from the pyroclastic deposits or to extract water from below the lunar surface. And finally, space salads. A team of Japanese scientists have completed an investigation into the effects of gravity on plant growth by successfully growing cucumbers on board the ISS. The experiment was designed to discover if gravity or water has a greater impact on root growth. On Earth, there are two effects which govern root growth. Hydrotropism, where roots grow towards high concentrations of water, and gravitropism, where the roots grow in the direction of the pull of gravity. By growing cucumbers on the ISS, the effects of microgravity could be investigated. The experiments showed that hydrotropism has a greater influence in controlling root growth. This could have interesting impacts on long-distance space travel, as it would appear that in order to grow plants well, we only need to use water concentration gradients and can manage without strong gravity. This discovery is an important one in the steps towards long-term space habitation. Thanks for that, Josh. Now, Monique interviews Dr. Katrina Jackman about adventures in the outer solar system. Hi, I'm here today with Dr. Katrina Jackman, who's an associate professor at Southampton. Welcome to the Dreadcast. Thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, it's good to have you here today to give a talk. Um, So... You're talking today a little bit about magnetospheres, about in planets in the solar system. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So today I'm going to focus on the gas giant planets, and that's Jupiter and Saturn. And it's a really exciting time to be studying those planets because we have a spacecraft at Jupiter called Juno, and we have a spacecraft at Saturn called Cassini. And I've worked on Cassini since the beginning of my PhD, which was back in 2003. Uh, so Cassini has had a fantastic time at Saturn and I've been working primarily with the magnetometer instrument which measures Saturn's magnetic field and Cassini is about to finish so it's executing its final orbits at the moment uh, some real daredevil orbits in inside of the rings between the top of the atmosphere and the rings so it's getting some fantastic data as we speak and it will finish on the 15th of September of this year so um, it's a really great time to be studying Saturn And then also with Jupiter, NASA's Juno mission arrived in July of last year, July of 2016. And that is currently, again, doing some fairly daredevil orbits at Jupiter. So really, really close to the planet and also through the radiation belts, which is a a very intense uh, region of Jupiter's magnetosphere with very intense radiation. And so Juno is there at the moment and will be there for some time. And so there are results coming back from that and actually just last week uh, there was a paper published in Science and a load of papers published in a journal called Geophysical Research Letters with new data from Juno and it's something that the public can get involved with as well. Uh, There are images being released all the time from the Juno Cam which is an instrument that the public can sort of help to control. Oh wow. Um, So some real opportunities both with Cassini and with Juno for the general public or for um, astronomy enthusiasts to, to get involved and learn more about these amazing environments. Mm, yeah, that is very cool. And so you focus more specifically on the um, magnetospheres, as you're saying. So what does that term actually mean? So a magnetosphere is really like a magnetic bubble that exists around a magnetised planet. So Earth has a magnetosphere and the magnetosphere protects us and keeps us alive. It protects us from space weather. And so the Earth has a giant 
magnet inside it and like the kind of magnets that you would have seen in school where if you throw some iron filings at the magnet you'll see the iron filings trace out the shape of dipole field lines you can imagine with these planets in the solar system that have big magnetic fields inside them those magnetic field lines stretching out huge distances into space and the magnetic field of, of planets like the Earth and like Jupiter and Saturn are they're very strong fields and they hold off the solar wind and the solar wind is a stream of charged particles that flows away from the sun and it's magnetized and it contains plasma which is charged particles and so the magnetosphere is is the magnetic bubble that is resisting this this solar wind flow and so we live within the earth's magnetosphere but it's also really interesting to study the magnetospheres of other planets because they have properties which are are different to our own and it's always interesting to compare and contrast and what can those magnetospheres of other planets, can they tell you anything about what makes up the planet itself? Because I suppose something must create them as well. So we don't actually have a perfect understanding yet of the interiors of Jupiter and Saturn. In fact, one of the main science goals of Juno is to understand what's inside Jupiter, because it's not currently known whether Jupiter has a solid core or to, to what depth that, that core um, might extend. And studying the magnetic field really helps you to, to learn about the dynamo that's, that's causing the field itself. And similarly for Saturn, one of the biggest mysteries that we have for Saturn is that we actually don't know how long a day is on Saturn. So we don't wow. know how quickly the planet rotates. I we thought we knew, knew it before. <laughs> well, we thought it was all fine. So when the Voyager spacecraft went past Saturn in the, in the early eighties, it measured radio emission from Saturn, which was mm -hmm. pulsing at a particular period. Mm -hmm. And radio emissions are usually a really good marker of the rotation period of whatever body mm -hmm. is, they're emanating from. And so uh, there was a measurement made of the radio emission from Saturn with a certain value, and it was a very clear periodic pulse. And then 20, 30 years later, when Cassini came back, it measured the radio emission <laughs> again, and it measured a periodic pulse, but it wasn't at the same period as oh, before. Oh, really? So wow. that was really puzzling. Mm -hmm. And actually, that radio emission is, is intimately tied to the magnetic field of the planet, because th mm -hmm. those two things are, are linked in terms of the generation mechanism. And so one of the things that Cassini is going to do at its, it, during this phase right now at the end of the mission is fly really, really close to Saturn and resolve the internal magnetic field to a very high degree. So get a really good understanding of what's going on inside Saturn, what's going on with the dynamo, and fundamentally tell us how long a day is. Mm -hmm. And so learning about the magnetosphere is an answer to your question does help us to learn about the interior of the planets because that's where those magnetic fields are generated. We still have a lot of open questions in the solar system and it's really exciting to be involved in missions that are answering those fundamental questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I had no idea that we didn't know how long a day was on Saturn. That's incredible. Um, and it's bizarre because it seems like at first something that would be fairly straightforward to figure out. One um, would think so. Now, yeah. of course, with any body that has visible features on the surface, mm -hmm. you can also just track visually. You can observe a body rotating around. Mm -hmm. But with Saturn and Jupiter, they're gas giant planets, and so they don't have a solid surface that we can see. Mm -hmm. And so you can track their rotation and you can look at the clouds, and that in itself is a, is a very interesting science. Mm -hmm. And just in the last week, Juno has sent back some amazing pictures of mm -hmm. Jupiter's really swirling clouds and there's there's a lot going on there um 
but studying the atmosphere is not the same as studying the deep interior and mm-hmm. so that's where magnetometers or instruments that measure magnetic fields can can help us to answer some of those big questions mm-hmm. oh, that's fascinating and so what for you drives you to study magnetospheres and magnetic fields like well, I first got into it uh, during my undergrad, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did an applied physics degree in Ireland, and part of my degree was a nine-month work placement in oh, my wow. third year, mm-hmm. and I did that at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, which is part of University College London. And at the time, Cassini was approaching Saturn, and so my part of my job was working on the electron spectrometer of Cassini mm-hmm. and just checking how it was functioning during the cruise. Um, and I just really fell in love with space mm-hmm. then. Uh, as I say, my, my degree was applied physics, so it, it was a range of all kinds of physics from semiconductors to medical physics to, well, every kind really. Um, and there wasn't really a great deal of astronomy or space science in my degree. But I, I always thought it was something that I might like to do. And I think the work placement gave me the opportunity to see whether the reality, the day-to-day reality of working mm-hmm as a space scientist was all that I had dreamed it would be. And, and it, you know, not to sound too corny, but it really was. Um, I just, I loved working on Cassini and I was really excited when I finished that work placement to go back, do the final year of my degree. And then I managed to get a PhD place at the University of Leicester. And that was working uh, with Professor Stan Cowley on the magnetometer data from Cassini. And it was really, really great to be uh, starting my PhD just before Cassini arrived at Saturn. It was a, a fantastic time and a fantastic data set and, and I haven't looked back. It's been great. No, it sounds like you were there at the right time. Yeah. I got lucky, for sure. And what would you say is the main thing that we've learned from Cassini in your particular area? So I'd say one of the main discoveries that's been made by the magnetometer team, uh, led by uh, Professor Michelle Doherty at Imperial College London, has been the discovery at the moon Enceladus. Mm-hmm. So Enceladus is one of many, many moons of Saturn. There are, are more than 60, and Cassini has, has found quite a few um, in its time. And so Enceladus is one of these icy moons, and Cassini passed by Enceladus initially back in late 2004. And the magnetometer sensed uh, quite a peculiar magnetic signal as the spacecraft passed by Enceladus. And it hadn't necessarily expected to measure anything because as far as we knew Enceladus didn't have any internal magnetic field or didn't have any atmosphere and so it was strange when Cassini passed by for Cassini to measure anything other than just the ambient magnetic field of Saturn but instead there was evidence as Cassini flew by that the magnetic field of Saturn was being somehow draped around Enceladus or or being slowed down the plasma was being slowed down in that region and so more and more study was done and actually um, Professor Do- Michelle Doherty persuaded the Cassini mission planners to take Cassini a bit closer to Enceladus, have, have a, a better flyby with a closer look. And what ultimately transpired is that Enceladus doesn't have an internal magnetic field of its own, but it has plumes of material coming out of the cracks near the southern pole, these wow. tiger stripes. They're very beautiful if mm. you can ever see an image of Enceladus. Um and that's probably one of the headline discoveries um, of Cassini, initially led by the magnetometer team, but in collaboration with the imaging team and the plasma mm. teams. And, you know, Cassini is a great example of a mission where 
there are many, many instruments and there are people from all nationalities from all over the world working together to get the best out of the spacecraft and mm -hmm. to get the best out of the opportunity of having flown all the way to Saturn to, to be able to take these measurements. So I'd say Enceladus was an unexpected surprise mm -hmm. and has really been one of the highlights um, of the Cassini mission. And since that initial discovery, we've learned a lot more about Enceladus and there have been many, many more flybys. So the spacecraft, spacecraft has flown by and has been able to almost sniff these plumes <laughs> and uh, most recently actually um, there was a publication of a result of uh, molecular hydrogen in one of these plumes which is indicative of the conditions that can support life. Oh. Doesn't mean that they've discovered life, I should be very clear on that, mm -hmm. but conditions for habitability seem mm -hmm. to exist on Enceladus, most likely in a subsurface ocean. And so those discoveries are made through using a combination of instruments, using imagers, using ion neutral mass spectrometers, using magnetometers, using plasma sensors, and and through many, many years of very, very careful data analysis and, and collaboration with people across the world. Um, so Enceladus has been a really, really fascinating body to study. Yeah, it sounds it. And what's it been like to be part of Cassini for such a long time because obviously it's you've been involved with it since the beginning of your career really. Yeah it's just been a real privilege. Mm. Um, I was very lucky as a student to have access to this data set and mm -hmm. as I've progressed through my career I see the years and years of effort that people put into planning space missions and mm -hmm. often it's people who are late on in their careers who are planning space missions which will really benefit the next generation. Um, so I feel just immensely privileged to have had access to Cassini data from the beginning of my PhD and and through my early postdoc years and and now uh, to, to where I am at this stage. So I'll certainly be sad when it finishes yeah. in September. But of course, the end of the mission itself certainly doesn't mean the end of the data analysis. And mm -hmm. we will have those data sets for years to come. And I certainly hope that myself and, and my students will have the time to delve into those data sets in more detail. Mm. Yeah, I think often people think that once you get to the end of the mission, that's it, right? But there's still so much science to be done, I Absolutely, guess. and particularly uh, for some of my colleagues on the magnetometer team who are working really hard to resolve the, the problem of this internal magnetic field mm -hmm. and the length of the day. Um, those are not overnight results. The data mm -hmm. will, will come through from the spacecraft, but they will be very, very carefully analysed. And so... Yeah, it won't be the end for Cassini scientists, but mm -hmm. um, it will certainly be a day to mark in yeah. September. Oh, that makes sense. And so now thinking more towards the future and, you know, even though Cassini will still have a place, what are you looking forward to the most over the next few years? So right now I'm doing a little bit of work uh, on Jupiter. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing some work with Jupiter's X-ray emissions. Mm -hmm. So Jupiter has very, very bright emissions from its polar regions. Mm -hmm. So it has auroral emissions in multiple wavelengths, I mean, ultraviolet and in X-ray. And if you Google Jupiter's aurora, you're most likely to see a, a picture of the ultraviolet aurora, but mm -hmm. there is also significant X-ray emission from the poles. And so recently I've been working with data from uh, the Chandra Observatory mm -hmm. and also from XMM Newton. And they are Earth-orbiting X-ray observatories, which have been looking at Jupiter to measure the X-ray emission, both from the poles and from the disk of the planet. 
And so what we're hoping to do over the coming months and years is to combine that X-ray data with data from the Juno spacecraft Mm -hmm. so that we have a remote picture of what's going on with Mm -hmm. Jupiter's X-rays and that we also have in situ measurements from Juno to tell us what the fields and particles are doing and Mm -hmm. how... um, the conditions in the magnetosphere are are driving those x-rays. Mm-hmm. So Jupiter is certainly a focus for now. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And I, I hadn't even thought about Aurora producing x-rays at all. That's a, yeah, so Jupiter yeah. is really a planet of superlatives. It's mm-hmm. the biggest planet in the solar system. It's got a very rapid rotation, less than 10 hours. It's got a very, very strong magnetic field. Mm-hmm. And that scenario co- combines to to give these very, very strong x-rays mm-hmm. and so they're they're something it's a field that's kind of emerging mm-hmm. i would say but it's a really good opportunity when you have a spacecraft like juno in situ taking mm-hmm. measurements to then have any kind of re- remote observing that you can manage so looking uh with hubble at the mm-hmm. uv aurora looking with chandra and xmm or even new star at the x-rays and then even ground-based observers are looking at, mm-hmm. at Jupiter in the infrared. So all eyes are on Jupiter <laughs> at the moment, as well as Saturn. It's, mm-hmm. it's a busy time for gas giant uh, fans. Well, it sounds like an exciting time to be working, really. It is. It's great. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll leave it there because you've got to get ready for your talk. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. And hopefully we'll have you back again in the future. Sounds good. Thank you for that, Monique. Now we come to the part of the show where we put in the bits that we can't fit in anywhere else, which is, of course, the odds and ends. This month, I think we're going to do something slightly different for the odds and ends, and that there's going to be one kind of extended rant, maybe. Um, discussion. For, from from me, which Passionate you're, you're f- welcome to comment on as much as possible, please, about a paper which came out during the month of June about the LIGO signals, which were originally detected last year, the gravitational wave signals. And it kind of calls into question the truthfulness of that detection and whether there are some problems within the data which could cast doubt on them being true detections. So at the end of 2015, there was this detection by the LIGO group of a gravitational wave signal coming from a in-spiral and a merger of two high-mass black holes, which they announced uh, in the spring of, of 2016. And that has all been very nice and it's been a, a, a very big news story in astronomy and astrophysics. It's a great new window on our observations of the universe and a great way to learn about the universe. And we've had Jogcast episodes talking about that. So if you haven't heard about it, then you've not been paying attention. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, it is the biggest astronomy news of the past, probably since um, dark energy was discovered. Right? I mean, the reason it was so exciting was that it was finally direct evidence for mm. gravitational waves, which was the last prediction of Einstein's general relativity. Um, and so that was the that was the very last piece of the puzzle that he predicted that hadn't been directly measured. So it had been measured indirectly, for example, in um, binary systems, which in spiral, in spiral, you think some of that energy is given off due to gravitational waves, and so they get closer and closer together over time. But this is the first time a wave itself was directly detected, allegedly. Mm-hmm. And so this made massive news. Most people think it's a pretty nailed-on Nobel Prize as well. Um, the people thought that the only reason it didn't get the Nobel Prize last year was due to timing issues and stuff mm-hmm. like that. 
and it, you know, it, it was a reasonably long-running experiment as well, um, and to the point where they were kind of almost a little bit of a joke in astronomy, because whenever there was a LIGO talk, you knew they would just be talking about all of their tests, because they spent years and years testing, removing all the background noise, whether it was earthquakes, or even stuff like if a car drove up past um, the um, base or something. So, you know, there were really a lot of work went into making sure they got it right. And if you Google Jogcast LIGO, you will see that we've got an interview with Patrick Sutton at some point. So ah. if you wanna, yeah, if you wanna go and listen to that. He has an excellent Canadian accent as well. So even if you just enjoy listening to Canadian accents, then go for it. <laughs> yes, that happened last year. Everything looked gravy. Uh, but then on the 13th of June this year, a paper appeared on the, the archive preprint server, which is used as a place for people to post their astronomy, astrophysics, and also I think like a lot of mathematics and economics articles go on there for public view, usually at the same time they're submitted to an academic journal. Um, and this is a great open access site, so you can go and read these papers and everybody, uh, it's how everybody really follows the, the literature. So, I mean, I never actually read anything in journals anymore. I always read everything on the archive. Um, and I think that's true for 99.9% of all astronomers as well. So, on that website, a group of astronomers from Denmark, working in Denmark, um, so it's come to be known as the Danish paper, and this Danish paper contained a couple of different reanalyses of some of the LIGO data, because LIGO were very good, they spent, as we said, they had a lot of time without detections, so they had a lot of time to do very nice things for when they did have detections, such as set up facilities for sharing their data. So you can go and download the data which constitutes the LIGO detection of gravitational waves. And this Danish group had done exactly that. And then they had analysed this data in a couple of different ways and basically found strange things in it which they contend should cast doubt on our confidence um, in what that detection is. So gravitational wave data, what it actually looks like is... Uh, a series of measurements over time. The LIGO instrument is a Nicholson-Morley interferometer, and what it does is basically have two arms at 90 degrees to each other, and you measure the differential path length along those arms, so the, dis the difference between the lengths of those arms, and as the gravitational wave goes past, one of the arms becomes shorter due to the squeezing from the gravitational wave, one of them becomes longer due to the stretching of the gravitational wave, can see the difference in the lengths of those two arms, and that's how you measure a gravitational wave. They had taken this time series data, so lots of different points um, taken at uh, regular intervals uh, every tiny fraction of a second, and then they do a Fourier transform of that data. So a Fourier transform is an incredibly common kind of data analysis technique um, uh, in physics. Um, my PhD supervisor told me once, if you don't know what to do, just Fourier transform the data and something interesting will happen, um, which is good advice. Kind of what these guys did. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you're familiar with the graphic equalizer on your stereo, then that is a, a nice way of thinking about Fourier transform. So if you've been fiddling around with a graphic equalizer, then you've actually been fiddling around with some Fourier transform stuff, even if you didn't realize it. So what a Fourier transform does is take a signal, such as the sound coming out of your stereo, or the gravitational wave signal, and it decomposes it into different notes and different frequencies. So you can 
turn up the treble on your graphic equalizer, and that is changing the amount of high frequencies which are in the sound. So, high notes, high frequencies, or you can turn up the bass on your graphic equalizer, which changes the amount of low frequencies. Or if rather than a music lover trying to shape your sound, you are a scientist just trying to measure what the sound actually sounds like, then you take measurements of the bass notes and the high notes, and you see what the Fourier transform of, of the, the sound looks like. And you can take the Fourier transform of the LIGO data and look at how many low notes there are and how many high notes there are. These uh, Danish group took that uh, data, did this Fourier transform, and then they looked for correlations between the starting points of the low notes and the high notes. So you take this LIGO signal and you Fourier transform it, and if everything is working as advertised, then what you should get when you Fourier transform it is a big random mess, which has absolutely no structure in it at all. And if you make the plot, it just looks like uh, white noise on a television or something. Is that what the signal looks like, or is that what the noise looks like when you subtract the expected signal? So the signal is buried so far in the noise Ah. that it doesn't necessarily matter. But this, so yeah, signals from gravitational waves are really, really faint. I remember someone once saying that it's sort of the equivalent of measuring the uh, gravitational pull of a cloud passing above you in the sky, something like that, on that sort of level. Um, yeah. So the, uh, the tiny, tiny fractions that they can measure are, are terrifying. Um, but the reason they can do it is because we think we understand general relativity well, so they can make very, very detailed models of the signal. And if you make a very detailed model of the signal, then you can pick it out of this very high noise environment. Because there's a lot of mess, and that comes from the Earth as well as from space, right? There's, um, as well, if you've got a train driving past, I know, where is LIGO based? It's in the middle of a desert somewhere, right? So, so, so there's, there's two detectors, mm. one um, in Louisiana and one in Washington State. Yeah, so that, I imagine they try and mitigate the amount of noise due to human vibrations, but mm-hmm. tremors, for example... Apparently, I think it was the Louisiana one, apparently a, a farmer drove out and shot it a few times. Um, <laughs> shot LIGO? Yeah, mm-hmm. just shot just the vacuum tubes. Just so. because they could. So. And was I, it trespassing onto his land, yeah. basically? Oh. Well, you think he would have noticed them building the big a pipe. multi-billion pound vacuum tube, mm. one of the least dense environments in the universe, <laughs> in order to try and... You think he would have noticed. Yeah. <laughs> but Apparently not. Anyway... Um, so the, the, the random white noise mess that you should get when you take the Fourier transform of your LIGO data, um, what these guys had actually found was something which looked like it had a lot of structure in it. So it uh, uh, you can go and look um, on the website, which will be linked to, and there is a lot of structure in this, and it basically looks like a, a thin band going across the plot uh, with a few different spikes in it, rather than this random white noise. And they say, hey, this is clearly something going on. There is clearly structures in what should be noisy data. And if there are structures in noisy data, then we were just talking about the signal is a structure in noisy data. So they uh, they contend that this is maybe somehow indicative that there are structures in the noise which the LIGO collaboration don't understand, and if they don't understand the structures in the noise, then it is difficult to say whether the structures in the data are noise structures or signal structures. And the second thing 
that they they found. That was only one of their two problems with it, with this uh, Lego data that they were able to download. The second thing was that if you take the best fitting model signal for the gravitational wave, which LIGO claimed to have detected, and you subtract that signal from the data, then there is still what looks like some kind of signal left over in the data, basically, which is quite a simple thing, quite a simple contention. And they, again, make this point that if what you were subtracting was the signal, then what you should have left should be only noise and it should not have these structures in it which you can visibly see. So you have the original LIGO detection, you have this uh, Danish paper contending that there are these two problems with it, and when this paper came out it received a, a reasonable amount of attention. Um, so uh, certainly on my Twitter feed there are a lot of people commenting on it and saying hey this is interesting, and, uh, maybe there is a problem with this seemingly previously Nobel-worthy result. And it also got picked up. Um, uh, the, the, the chief, kind of the thing that has the widest readership, which probably commented on it, was uh, the, the Forbes website. So the Forbes Business Magazine got Sabine Hossenfelder, who works uh, uh, in uh, theoretical physics and cosmology, and also uh, writes a blog called uh, Back Reactions, which I would heartily recommend if you're after usually very uh, sober and thorough and uh, uh, very, very good, very well-written commentary on new physics results. Sabine wrote a blog post for Forbes magazine uh, explaining what was going on with this, uh, both reiterating uh, the importance of the the LIGO scientific discovery um, and also uh, uh, saying that was it all just noise? Independent analysis casts doubt on LIGO's detections. So that was the, the headline, um, which presumably Sabine uh, uh, maybe didn't write, but was certainly the headline which went out there. And then the, the tone of the article um, uh, is actually more measured than the headline, as is, is, is usual. Uh, but it does point out, hey, they have found these funny things in the noise correlations. Maybe this diminishes our confidence in, in this LIGO result. Um, and obviously, the, the readership of this is in the, the several millions. Meanwhile, the, the readership of the, the archive paper um, was, uh, you know, in the maybe thousands to tens of thousands at the very most. Um, so this was obviously a, a, a very big thing. But then... And this did blow up, right? It's a huge thing. And that's not really surprising, considering when you have a bold claim, a really big claim, um, you're going to have contention there. Uh, the, the more, no, not outrageous. That's the wrong word. Well, the, so the classic quote is: "Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence." Exactly, right? and they will come under a lot of scrutiny as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is not necessarily a bad thing. And obviously, with a Nobel Prize possibly winning a c- claim about uh, a theory that is still one of the um, most outrageous and well-tested theories of all time by Albert Einstein, who is in everybody's. Uh, dictionary, everyone knows what he looks like, well, almost everyone, it's no surprise that when you come out and try and prove the final piece of his puzzle, people will be looking very closely. And the more people who look closely, you may find, depending on if they're doing it correctly or not, will have issue with with your data. So it's no surprise that this thing blew up. So, uh, if if any of you listeners were were getting very excited at the, the prospect of LIGO perhaps uh, being wrong and this whole thing coming crashing down uh, around them, then 
unfortunately, uh, uh, cool your jets, I would say, because a few days after this Danish paper came out, uh, another blog post was made, um, uh, this time on the blog by Sean Carroll called Posterous Universe, which again, I would hardly recommend. It's a very nice blog to read. Uh, it was a guest post by somebody called uh, Ian Harry, who is a, a member of the LIGO Collaboration, uh, uh, works at the uh, Max Planck Institute in Potsdam. And it basically takes the Danish paper and uh, uh, basically uh, deconstructs it. And uh, I think, uh, personally, and also many of the people, many of the other professional astronomers I know think, uh, provides a, uh, a a very good body of evidence that the, the Danish guys were not really right in what they were doing and that the LIGO result probably does still stand up. So in response to their, their first point about these this this correlated noise that they were able to generate, um, so the fact that they were able to generate a plot which rather than looking like complete uh, random noise like static on your television, they were able to have this uh, narrow band of things with spikes coming out of it, uh, it, uh, Ian Harry was able to take random number numbers generated by his computer by literally typing in random into his computer and generating random numbers by doing the same process that the Danish people had done. He was able to create the correlations in those random numbers um, which these guys were seeing as well. So that shows that the problem is with their analysis rather than with the underlying data. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't um, a problem with how LIGO were recording or interpreting that data. It was a problem in the, the treatment of that data that the um, Danish guys were able to give. The reason that this occurred was that the Danish people were taking the Fourier transform of their data, which was actually not a periodic piece of data. So when you take the Fourier transform, you implicitly assume that the end of your data joins up with the start of your data. And they had assumed that when they did their Fourier transform. But this is, of course, not true because they had taken a particular finite amount of time out of the LIGO data. And as it turns out, the noise in LIGO data, although it's basically random, it does drift on timescales comparable to the amount of time that the Danish people had taken out of the LIGO data. And that means that the end of their data did not actually join up with the start of their data. There was actually a slope from the beginning to the end of the data, which, if you look in the LIGO papers, they go at great lengths to talk to you about how they, it's called whitening noise, where they take out this uh, long-term drift out of their data and they whiten it to, to create something which should look like this random noise. And... In response to the second claim from the Danish people that there is a appreciable shape left over in the LIGO, uh, the actual signal in real space rather than the Fourier transform of it, um, which is somehow significant, Ian Harry points out very correctly and very sensibly that the signal which is subtracted from the LIGO data is not the 100% real correct signal because the actual shape of the signal depends on a lot of things to do with the gravitational wave, to do with the masses of the black holes that created it, um, the inclination angle of the um, kind of spiral arrangement that they were going around in, and the, the spin of the black holes, and uh, many other things like that, as well as the particulars of general relativity. And general relativity is really hard. And the way that we make the models of these signals to find out which signal 
looks most like the one in the data, uh, which is then subtracted, is by working out what those signals look like on a computer. And this is called numerical relativity, and it's an incredibly hard, um, a crazy subject, which has only really been, been possible for the last 10 years or so. So the best fitting signal to the gravitational wave event is not ever in the scale of human, uh, uh, what is possible for humans to generate going to be an absolutely perfect reproduction of what the true gravitational wave signal actually was. And this is why experimental results come with errors as well, right? So when, like I say, they have measured this gravitational wave signal, which came from uh, two black holes of the given mass, the masses have errors on. And part of the reason that it has errors on is because we can only uh, work out what signals look like within a given tolerance in terms of things like the different masses of the black holes. So if you subtract the best fitting signal model, then because that is not a completely perfect uh, uh, signal model, then there will be some residuals which are left over. And the amount of residuals which are left over is also perfectly reasonable um, uh, in comparison to what you would expect from the noise in the gravitational wave detectors. And LIGO points to, again, uh, the whole swathe of literature that they have on assessing just how often things which look like these residuals occur in only the noise events. And part of what they do is they have this false alarm rate where these noise events, which could look a little bit like signal, they evaluate how often those should occur just to, just uh, by random chance, which is, again, something that the Danish group didn't do, um, and hence they didn't properly assess the significance of what was going on. So Ian is, is, is uh, again, very good and uh, correct to point out that there could be something interesting in these residuals, right? The the fact that these residuals are not completely gone um, could be to do with modifications to general relativity. Like I said, the, the theory of general relativity could not be quite correct. The theory of gravity that we have in the universe could actually be slightly different, and that could create residuals in the LIGO signal after the best fitting uh, one is subtracted. But again, LIGO in their papers assessed what constraints they could place on that and found that there was no good evidence for deviations from general relativity. So that is his refutation of the, of the second point, and again, is a very good refutation. So after this, the Danish group came back with a post on one of their websites, which addressed some of these uh, concerns which had been raised by uh, uh, Ian, but um, uh, not all of them, and also in not a necessarily convincing way. Uh, so I think most people are very much still on the side of LIGO, but it would be uh, interesting in particular, I think, given some of the things we're about to discuss uh, in terms of interpretation of science, to hear from you as the, the Jodcast listeners um, how much of this you'd actually heard about. Presumably you heard about the original LIGO detection. Did you hear about the, the, the potential uh, refutation of it? And very importantly, did you also hear about this uh, counter-refutation which uh, uh, seems to have put the, the original LIGO detection back on a good footing. So um, I also think it's worth mentioning, though, that that the fact that the uh, Danish group 
just apply this Fourier transform without thinking about whether or not the data was periodic is something that astronomers do all over and physicists do all over in general. I think the Fourier transforms are ubiquitous mm -hmm. in physics and a lot of the time people don't think very closely about the boundary conditions. Yep. And it's more that in 99% of cases, or even 99.99, whatever, um, it doesn't have any implications and this just happens to be one of those yep. cases where it does. And usually you've got to think about the people who are very used to the data will know how the data works, and they will know how to treat the data. Mm -hmm. If someone is coming in from outside of a collaboration and performing some analysis on that data, then they should be very careful about understanding that data correctly before they make the analysis, yes. before they make very bold claims. Yes. Uh, because all you're doing is embarrassing yourself, really. The, the body of expertise which constitutes the LIGO collaboration is a very, very large body of expertise, right? There, there are hundreds, nearly, I think nearly a thousand people in the LIGO collaboration, signing these papers as authors on these papers talking about the gravitational wave detection. Uh, this is not just a club where people get together because they know each other and they all sign on to this paper. They're all experts in various things which make them suitable for different parts of the analysis process for this very big machine. Uh, now, The problem with that, though, <laughs> is that making that argument, no one can ever reanalyze their data, right? Is because no one there is no other group of that size that has the expertise that can reasonably analyze that data. So, I mean, you can look at what the Copenhagen group did very skeptically and said, you know, they were just trying to get attention, whatever, but you can also say they had a go, right? They did what science is meant to do. And this has led to, you know, we've talked we've mentioned we'll talk about some of the effects of that. But also what were they meant to do? Mm -hmm. How is this meant to work in mm -hmm. practice? Because in practice, mm -hmm. we don't have second collaborations of mm -hmm. thousands of people all the time who can do this and spend years mm. on this. Now, what I think is important here to know is um, everyone should understand this. The, the LIGO collaboration should understand this. The Danish team should also understand this. So a, a good way of sort of coming, not having these misunderstandings is discourse between the collaboration yeah. and the Danish team. So after performing this analysis on data that have been already performed by thousands and thousands of people over a period of years, what in an ideal world would have happened would have been that these two teams would have communicated and discussed it. Mm -hmm. Now, this might not necessarily have been what happened. Yeah, so so uh, part of part of the crux of this, um, which, which is mentioned by uh, uh, Ian Harry in, uh, in the blog post and is also mentioned um, uh, uh, on other blog posts by other LIGO collaboration members, this Danish group have done things before which the LIGO collaboration as a collaboration has warned them about and pointed out errors in. And then the, the, the counter argument to this being okay is that there is an implicit burden of responsibility on the Danish group to not make very large claims which haven't been in some way engaged with by the people who really, really know the data. So uh, they had made similar claims about problems with LIGO data in the past, and LIGO people had pointed out problems with those reanalyses with to them. Uh, they had not responded, uh, apparently. And then they had gone away still and written this paper, which they cannot... It's difficult to imagine them not knowing that it would have made a very large splash and been promulgated in the media and had a very large readership in terms of them getting all of this um, very broad public attention. So the the kind of counter-argument to what you've been saying, Charlie, about this this being a good example of, of how science works and how people are able to reanalyze data and things like that, 
is that it, it, in this case it was very much a, a false controversy because the the kind of due diligence wasn't done in terms of balancing their surety in the problem with the amount of publicity that the problem potentially would have created. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I do agree that generally if you get a result that shows someone else's paper is wrong due to their analysis or anything, the first thing you should do is contact them. But also I don't know how responsive LIGO would have been had they done that. Um, I know people in this department who found serious mistakes in other people's work, emailed them and they've just never replied. And the second problem is, is well, one, I mean, I, I haven't actually read the details of the paper, so I don't know how strongly they make their assertions. I could say at least the title of that paper is not saying LIGO is wrong or something in fancier language to that effect. Um, but how cautious should they be? So, to recap, we have the LIGO detection end of 2015, announced in 2016. Everybody is, woo, yay, we might have a Nobel Prize because gravitational waves are very cool. Uh, then some Danish people say, hey, there's some funny noise correlations in your data. Maybe it wasn't a gravitational wave, it was just some funny noise correlation that you didn't fully understand. Uh, this gets written up into a blog post, which goes on the Forbes website, uh, which has a big readership, and becomes a, a massively interesting thing for people who um, are interested in, in how science works and um, the way in which scientific discoveries are scrutinised. Yes. And this is the way that scientific discovery works, right? Uh, this is uh, someone makes a claim and somebody else maybe uh, refutes that claim based on other analysis or other method. Um, and this comes to a very interesting point, which is sort of how should people report on science as an emerging topic as opposed to established fact? Yeah. And this is actually the whole of science is we make theories, we make predictions, we test them, and we improve our knowledge of the situation. Uh, the theory of gravity is still a theory. If something suddenly starts flying up one day, then we will have some new evidence and we will have to come up with a new theory for it. Uh, so science is constantly changing. It's constantly in flux. So the reason I did want Ian to come and tell tell us about this on the show is because I've personally heard some very mixed reactions to how Sabine or how Forbes should have maybe reported on the mm -hmm. original paper, the mm -hmm. original refutation. Um, and also it's an interesting topic because does this refutation and how the refutation was refutated, uh, have each of those been advertised and have each of those reached the same number of readers? Yeah. Uh, does that necessarily, if more people hear about the refutation than the facts that people now think mm -hmm. LIGO was actually initially correct, mm -hmm. how does that necessarily harm science and the funding of science? Uh, because obviously a big, a lot of money comes from you guys. A lot of the money that we use to build things like uh, LIGO comes from taxpayers' money. So depending on who makes the decision for funding depends on uh, what science experiments get done. Yeah. Now, if this goes completely on public opinion, uh, then it could follow trends which may or may not be there. And it could follow controversies, and it could be influenced by controversies which, in the long run, turn out not to be controversies. So it's a really interesting discussion, and this is why we're having this discussion here. I guess the point is, so even funding aside, because you could argue that 
scientific funding shouldn't be based on the ups and downs of public opinion, which is, I think, what people are now trying to make that case now more so. A lot of, you know, love him or hate him, a lot of the work that Brian Cox has been doing is about saying, actually, no, science has solid impacts on your economy um, and on your industries, and that's the argument we should be making. And it does, and we hear about multiple examples of this all the time. But I mean, recently... Oh. Aside from all of that, though, yeah. is, that, is the other thing is that it means it changes the way that people trust scientists, and that's my really big issue with it, is because, so you're, you, you, you're saying that science is this fluid, changing thing, but actually presenting it that way is really dangerous, because that's what leads people to say, it's just a theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's the problem we're seeing with evolution with climate change people go it's just a theory and they say well look this other person found something else it's the thing that we see with um, the MMR vaccine and in fact that has many parallels to this mm-hmm. in some ways and that mm-hmm. is still having huge that is causing people to die yeah. today um, and so yes science is fluid but actually when most astronomers saw that LIGO paper the um, LIGO response paper sorry most of them would have gone Actually, I think that's probably not, it's probably a problem there. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think LIGO is probably okay. Mm-hmm. And whilst, yes, scientists should always check the evidence, and we do, but part of, a lot of science does come with trust. Yes. And I don't think scientists want to admit that. But the reality is, is people don't have time to go through and check all the data and so and so. And even when we talk about this reputation, for someone from the general public, or even for me, because it's not my research field, a lot of what I do when I read these articles is tr- is trying to figure out which of those people I should trust more. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I mean, part of the, this is part of the difficulty, but also part of the point is that science is done by people, right? Mm. Science is done by actual real people who have their own prejudices and their own biases in all kinds of ways, um, and their own favourite topics and their own least favourite topics, and their own hang-ups about being an underdog and that like science is done by real people with real things uh, but science is also used by real people mm-hmm. with real prejudices and so this is something that i want to talk to you about guys about as well for example um <clears throat> officially a few months ago it was reported that the chair of house science uh, for a committee on u.s policy for climate change dismissed testimony based on articles from the journal science because that was not objective uh, now, science is one of the most prestigious scientific journals that exists. So if science isn't objective about science, uh, then really that's, I don't even know, that's like saying. So my, my response to that would be that, that science isn't objective, but then nothing is objective, mm. right? Like every, every, literally everything is subjective because everything is said by a person and interpreted mm-hmm. by a person yeah. in some way. But the point I'm making here possibly is that I think that personally we should be we should not be portraying science as solid fact all the way through. We should not. It's dangerous to say this is right, because when it is then found out to be different later on, it, um, people would start saying, oh, well, but you said this was right before. I think, it's, I think it's a nice way of doing things to show that science is a learning process. It changes the way that people think about science, and I think also it encourages people who might go, oh, I could never have come up with one of those ideas, uh, to think, well, actually, people mm-hmm. built upon these ideas over a very long time. So in some ways, you were right, Monique, before, but in some ways, I think that you you win and you lose, basically, depending on how you portray it. And it doesn't matter how you portray it. Someone is always going to come up and say, and say you're not objective. Someone with an agenda may always dismiss your evidence, depending on who's in charge of it and who wants it. So I agree to a point, but also when you're when you're giving a talk, when you're writing an article... 
actually, the truth is you don't have time to constantly say, this is an idea. And there are things that we all accept is true. We all accept that we are held to the ground by gravity. We no longer contest that that is a theory that we are continually working on. Um, and I realise that is a very reductionist argument I've just made. <laughs> but that's still it's still valid, right? And because yeah. the problem is, is that when you... So I do agree with teaching people about the scientific process, and I think that is the way science should be taught in schools. But the discourse that we're now seeing in the media about science is that people are taking the science as a process thing to the extreme in the way that they understand science. And so that every time they see an article, they take it with a pinch of salt. And a lot of this is harmed by, you know, the thousands of articles you see saying, wine prevents cancer. Or wine causes cancer. And you get a back and forth. And, and the problem the problem is is also that people don't read the articles and you, so what most people do when I read the news is I read the headlines and I will read an article if I find it interesting and you cannot show in the headline alone science is a process so the other thing as well is that you can say that they are doing this just because they get the media splash but ultimately if their analysis is faulty then it shouldn't pass peer review and if it doesn't pass peer review then that won't affect their research output in the strongest way because the, the when you the way that the universities typically measure research out, output whilst they look at media impact the core thing is papers and citations and if it never makes peer review and never gets published then ultimately they won't benefit from it strongly so the question is if they were doing this just to gain attention which i, I don't i'm not sure they are i think it could have easily just been any a mistake um then actually they don't gain that much from it so uh, there's that facet in terms of, of their career, but then mm. that is for, I don't think that that is reflected at all in terms of the public understanding of the science no, and the public true. understanding of the result. But generally, most scientists care about their career first. So is in, in, I'm thinking in terms of their motivation, mm-hmm. yep. um, like this is something that harms their career. So if they were, if they were doing this <sighs> deliberately, say, um, they were being slapdashed with their analysis because they wanted to get that media attention, and I don't think they are, but it would harm them. So there's no, that isn't a strong motivation. It doesn't make sense for that to be a strong motivation for them. So I'd like to ask a question here. What is it, would you say, both of you, uh, has harmed the career? Because actually, in science, people do make mistakes as you are learning about something. And if you are publishing a paper onto the archive, which let's remember, as you say, Monique, is before peer review, not every paper comes out and is published into a paper because of reasons exactly like this. This just so happens to be a very volatile subject because of the the magnitude of the refutation, the magnitude of discovery. Yeah. Is this necessarily, is it necessarily the fact that they, they have maybe performed some analysis on some data they didn't understand, which harms their career? Or is it that it blew up thanks to modern ways that the media report on things like science and the, the way that things can propagate very, very quickly when there's a controversy. So my impression would be that like the, the amount of impact that this will have on their careers in general will be absolutely minimal. I think it's one... So certainly a, a couple of people I know on this paper have very good reputations, very long-standing reputations in various types of data analysis, which they are clearly very good at and absolutely know what they're doing. And the, the paper itself is is generally well-written and clearly doesn't have any, uh, you know, major flubs in it and is actually, in terms of tone, is actually quite measured. I, I, I think the, in, the impact on the 
uh, people who've actually written the paper will be very much more determined by how they present the result in the future. Uh, if they are willing to go say, oh, hey, we didn't, oh, yeah, duh, uh, we, we didn't realise we were, we forgot that we were taking the Fourier transform of a non-periodic time series. We, we messed up. Sorry about that. Whatever. Um, we are comfortable with the fact that we've made, made that mistake. I think a lot of people would, would take that as a benefit towards them because, you know, they've done something which was brave and interesting. Um, but when the mistake in it has been pointed out, they're just going, oh yeah, okay, sorry. But if they were, if they then go on and persist with this, uh, in the face of, uh, very, very reasonable and very, very good and very, very well presented arguments to the contrary, then that is where this would come up. And, uh, I, I have also printed out an extra paper, um, which came out more recently by Roger Penrose. <laughs> Uh, Money has just made a face, um, and Charlie is coughing. Sorry. And I think making faces and coughing. <laughs> Didn't realise he still wrote papers. Is exactly the right right way to react on cosmology papers written by Roger Penrose in 2017. And uh, this paper, which came out again on the archive, uh, I think uh, uh, this week, it claims that the correlated noise signals, which were found by the Danish people, are evidence for. If you know Roger Penrose, you know what's coming. Conformal cyclic cosmology. Oh. Um, and conformal cyclic cosmology is Roger Penrose's pet uh, theory for how the universe as a whole works, which basically involves... Uh, it's a cyclic universe, right? So it starts off with a big bang, and then it expands, and then there's another big bang, and then it expands, blah, 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 blah. Uh, nobody other than Roger Penrose seems to really know how it, how it works. Um, there have been a few papers published by Roger Penrose saying about how there's evidence for it in the CMB, which were quickly refuted by people who actually work on the CMB. And, yeah, uh, it, the, uh, he claims that this that this is evidence in favour of his pet uh, cosmology theory. Um, I don't think um, anyone believes him. <laughs> no, but then, unfortunately, again, because his name is so renowned, that's also something that will gain traction. Um, because pe- in the same when Stephen Hawking comes out and says something which is yep. sometimes ridiculous, like not always, of course, but he will always gain attention for that. And so back to your question, Charlie, about, you know, does the responsibility with this lie with the media who are reporting or the scientists who put it out? I guess the answer is both. But I also think that it's understandable the way the media presents it, right? I've had this argument before with Chris Lintor, <laughs> actually, um, I think on Twitter, um, because people always are going to like that kind of underdog story, right? Yeah. I, I like that underdog story. And the, the, I mean, the truth is, I was more interested in this story than I was in the LIGO possible second detection, because after the first one, I was like, eh, whatever. Um, and it's really hard to portray this narrative in a non-sensational way at all. It's really hard to do that and for, it to, for people to still care. Um, and so I'm not really sure what... I'm not, I haven't got a good solution to this. I think, you know, the author's perhaps, you know, the things they should have done, as we've talked about, is reach out to LIGO if they didn't. Um, they did write it in a measured way, which is important. Um, and also, perhaps, once there was a response to it, I mean, there's a question, should they retract it, or should they have comments, or whatever? They should definitely do something along those lines to make it, so if people stumble across it later, they don't go, oh, this is true. But they did most of it right, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of how you should put out a result that you think might be valid but you're not 100% sure about and then from the reporter's side I mean this wasn't produced that badly I think to some extent scientists do have to accept that 
those kind of stories where a lone group um, comes up against a huge collaboration are always going to be more interesting. And I think it's... And sometimes it works. Sometimes it's right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think to some extent you have to accept that in the same way that you accept that often science stories that are particularly more relevant to, you know, science stories on certain topics are always going to get more traction. Um, sometimes that is because people aren't explaining some areas, <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, but you know, those, those red wine stories are always going to yeah. get traction. I would like to pose here that maybe some of the responsibility also lies with the readers and the digesters of these scientific articles, because ultimately Every single person who reads this has the choice to read the title, read the abstracts of the blurb, and then go away and take what you can from the title. Um, and the exact example of this is Sabine's original uh, reporting of the Danish paper had a very sensationalist title, but then actually if you went away and read the, paper, read the article itself, you would have found that actually it was very measured, and I don't think it came to a conclusion one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would argue here that the some of the burden for this sort of thing. Burden, I don't know if burden's the right word to even use in this case, but you can't dismiss the facts that everyone has their own agency and everyone who reads an article can read it properly and they can go and they can read about related topics afterwards and they can follow the story. Everyone is able to go away and research and it's a, it's a very scientific thing to do. You hear a theory or you hear an argument and you, you go away and you look up, look it up yourself. Now, not everyone is of this mindset. Or has I'm, time. Yeah, I'm not even <laughs> sure it's about the mindset. It's more like how much do you care, right? Because mm. if you think of the amount of information you take in every day, mm-hmm. whether, say, even if you scroll down the BBC news page and, you know, normally there'll be some new discovery about bees or whatever, you don't take time to go and fact check each of those things. Mm. And I do agree. Some of the responsibility does lie with the reader. Um, but you also have to be realistic and say, well, for the reader, this is a very small part of their day. So, so it's, we can sit here and say, oh, oh yeah, it's very obvious that, mm. that taking a Fourier transform of a non-periodic time series is an obviously wrong thing to do. Mm. But in order to make that appraisal, we've had to go through, you know, somewhere between, you know, seven to 10 to 12 years worth of, education in physics and astronomy right and i wouldn't have known that mm-hmm. and al- although i kind of i kind of knew that i never really thought about it in those terms until i read this paper and about this controversy this made me go oh i should rethink how i've done this with my analysis <laughs> and i'm sure it's yeah. fine like i i'll check mm. in it will have no effects but it made me go oh god i that would not cross my mind mm. either but the reason that i wanted to bring this point up is really then why is this important to scientists why is this whole example of scientific process important to us why we said this is big news and anyone who follows gravitational waves is big because that is a very very big topic but why is it important to us as people who work in the field what could some of the effects be i'm not saying that they will happen but what could some of the effects be of a story like of a story like this so for me on a on a, uh, a personal level i don't like people believing things which aren't the most plausible explanations of things. Mm. I mean, I nearly said true there, but I'm, <laughs> I'm a well-trained scientist. I don't like using the word true. Um, so that will be for me on a personal level. I don't like people having the wrong end of the stick on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of classical thing about the the correction is never given as much space as the, the headline. People can be very irresponsible and drive agendas with things like that and uh, create very false impressions in people's mind. And that's obviously a very much a, a broader narrative within society. Um I think less personally and more pragmatically for science as a whole, it's about 
how much people are, are willing to, to, to fund science and trust science and have a society in which science is an integral part. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when you talk about trusting science, that also plays into, you know, how does the government refer to science advisors, for example? And that is something that, you know, in some countries, they're moving away from that, you know, referring to scientists to actually find out what they should trust and what they should believe. And these kind of things all add into that conversation, into people's perception of science. But I don't, to be honest, I think, and I think with the situation we have right now as well in society, there's been all this talk of fake news and whatever. The thing that scares me most about this is that it can add to that anti-intellectualism thing that's going on right now. Um, we know where people, where people, where people kind of just switch off and they go, oh, you know, it's just a theory or it's just, um, uh, that has, that has always been the case though, right? It's more prominent now, but yeah, I would no, say that mm-hmm. the, the, the fake news buzzword that is being bandied about, it's not a new thing. No. Well, no, no, so I agree, but the fact that a major politician could come out in the last year and say they don't trust experts mm-hmm. and that just be fine. Mm-hmm. largely fine um that's not okay no. and that's not something i'm comfortable with in society and i unfortunately i think that sometimes when the discourse when the scientific discussion that people have this back and forth that we all know is part of science unfortunately that discussion can be used to undermine science mm-hmm. i mean this i'm sure i'm preaching to the converted talking to all you yeah, the listeners, yeah, but i mean the, the 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 pinnacle of that is is clearly with climate change and climate change science yes. right and and the 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 massively overwhelming body of evidence and opinion among scientists that climate change is a thing and it, it's it's anthropo- anthropologically driven and yet you compare that to public perceptions of it and it's it's like night and day between the data and the interpretations of the data by the people um uh, who who have taken and, and interpreted that data versus how the public in general see it and are willing to take it as advice in how society should run in terms of actually doing things to mitigate climate change and also has the prospect to destroy the planet and the lives of everyone on it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I guess for, for me, though, what I want to see come from this kind of resort or this event or whatever you call it um, is a conversation with scientists about how how should we responsibly talk about scientists and uh, science, sorry, um, and how should we be presenting this better? Because at the end of the day as well, no matter how much we say, oh, it's the responsibility of the reader or so on, that's not changing the situation. Um I think when you said scientists, that was, I think science and scientists, those things together, I mean, it would be nice to have scientists, some people think that scientists talk down to them and know better than them, and I think it it would be good to have more scientists who don't need to go through the filter of a press release and a mainstream journalist sensationalising their work. It would be great to have more scientists who are capable of explaining their work in a way that they are comfortable with and the way that is also palatable to, to, you know, commercial news outlets because then you remove that filter of somebody's job, who it is to try and sell adverts on their website and get more clicks, mm. um, which it would obviously take time uh, out of scientists' science careers in general but is probably also necessary for their science to have the correct kind of uh, impact as it, as it needs to on society. I mean, all three of us here can identify with the having to seek an edit and 
get the core of a scientific paper in order to present it on the Jogcast, for example. We we all present, we all do odds and ends. Ian does news a lot. Monique, you you do interviews and you are often a presenter. It's hard, right? It's hard sometimes, depending I'm, on I'm how sure it works. I'm sure I've done it wrong as well, right? Yeah. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Scientific papers are, for even for scientists, they're really hard to read. Um, and perhaps also that's part of the issue is how impenetrable a paper is. Um, I mean, there's this big push for open access now, which I completely agree with. But, you know, some of the arguments for open access are about, oh, well, the public should be able to see them. And yes, that's true, but that's not helpful if you can't understand them without a PhD. Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're all sort of agreeing here that one of the key things is an improvement that scientists can do. One of the things that we can all do is improve the way that we talk about our work to people who aren't necessarily as technically... I think getting getting, getting real are. scientists to engage with the public as much as possible has got to be the... And that's improving. Although I should say that also has um, issues um, as... Oh, I will find the reference <laughs> for the show notes, but um, as we're talking about evidence after all, but there was a paper that came out in the last year that showed that when people had a scientific topic explained to them more clearly, they went away with, I think it was less trust in scientists because they felt that they could, because they were empowered to believe that they could do it, they mm-hmm. then thought they could apply that to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, which terrified me because... As I, someone, I think that sounds like a positive. No, well, no, so yes, it does. because <laughs> I want, So as, a, as someone who does a lot of science communication and talks and workshops and whatever, what I want people to go away feeling is, yes, I can do this because mm-hmm. I, I believe they can. But that's dangerous when, for example, I give a talk about Mars, they go away thinking, oh, yes, I can analyse these topics, whatever. And then they go and read a climate change article and go, yes, I can do this in the same way. And the truth is you have to as well as empower people to say, yes, I can think things through. And I, you know, mm-hmm. you also have to say, but yes, there are, there are knowledge, there is knowledge you don't have and there are limitations on your skills. And it's really difficult to find that balance because mm-hmm. there's this big push of, you know, and I agree with this big push of, you know, scientists shouldn't talk down to people and that's true, but there are times when that you have to say it's a bit more complicated than that. And to do that in a constructive way, and in I, a non-condescending Yeah, way. I've not figured out how to do that yet. And, and, uh, <laughs> so we need to work on that. And the, the other thing I was going to say is that you can't just put this responsibility on individual scientists. It has to come from above. It has to come from funding bodies. Cause I think all of us here, we've done lots of unpaid outreach work. And that's something we do just because we think it's important or because we enjoy it. But you can't rely on everyone to do that. Um, and also it means that you often don't know how effective a lot of that is. Um, so it really has to come from above. And now, talking with much greater certainty than any of that, uh, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for August 2017. Well, at least the nights are getting somewhat longer, and we do have a lovely part of the heavens to look at in the evening after dark. As darkness falls, the bright star Arcturus in Bootes is setting down towards the western horizon. But that lovely region of sky, containing Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra and Altair in Aquila, form what's called the Summer Triangle. The Milky Way is coming past as well. And it's a beautiful region to observe. And not least, just below Cygnus, is a tiny little constellation called Delphinus the Dolphin. 
if you follow with binoculars from Altair about a third of the way towards Vega, there's actually a dark region of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift, and there you might see an upside-down coat hanger. Brocky's Cluster is the correct name for it, but usually called the coat hanger. In fact, on the way, you'll pass the little constellation of Sagata, the arrow. As the night draws on, gradually towards the south rises the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, actually upside down from our viewing, with the great square of Pegasus. And that can lead you up to the nearest giant galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy. If you start at the top left-hand star of the square, called Alpha Rats, move leftwards and up a bit to a bright star, around a bit more to a second bright star, and then turn sharp right. You can find another star in the way, and beyond that is the little Andromeda galaxy. And you should see, on a dark, clear night with no moon, a little smudge of white light. Now, above Andromeda is the constellation of Cassiopeia, and that's a W. And in fact, the other way to find Andromeda is to look at the southerly part of the constellation, a V, and that V actually points down to Andromeda as well. So quite a number of nice things to look for, and I've pointed out one or two, uh, such as the M13 globular cluster and the double-double in Lara, with a detail how to find them on the Night Sky website. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter is now four months after opposition, so but still can be seen low in the southwestern sky after nightfall. It sets around midnight at the beginning of August. As the month progresses, its brightness falls from minus 1.9 to minus 1.7 magnitudes as its angular size falls from 34 to 32 arc seconds. It lies in Virgo, initially some 8 degrees to the west of Spica, reducing to 4 degrees as the month progresses. And Jupiter will pass Spica on September the 11th, on its journey towards the lower parts of the ecliptic. Sadly, next year, it will only reach an elevation of some 25 degrees when due south, and in the following two years, just 18 degrees, before it begins to move back towards the more northerly parts of the ecliptic, where we see it best. Even so, with a small telescope, one should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the great red spot, and up to the four of the Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Now Saturn. Saturn came into opposition on June the 11th, and so will now be at its highest elevation due south as darkness falls. It shines initially at magnitude plus 0.3, falling to plus 0.4 during the month, and has an angular size of about 17 arc seconds. With an angle of 26.8 degrees inclination to the line of sight, the rings are virtually as open as they ever can be. Their maximum tilt at 27 degrees, will come in October, the first time since 2002. Saturn will cease its westward retrograde motion on August the 25th. And again, it's sad that Saturn, now lying in the southern part of Ophiuchus, between Sagittarius and Scorpius, 
only reaches an elevation of some 17 degrees above the horizon when due south, so hindering our view of this most beautiful planet. Mercury. Well, given the very low western horizon, Mercury showing an 8 arc second disk and shining at magnitude plus 0.4 might just be seen after sunset at the beginning of August. Binoculars may well be needed, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. It passes between the Earth and the sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on August the 26th. Well, Mars. Mars passed behind the sun in July, but will be hidden in the sun's glare all month, so cannot be observed. Venus is visible in the east before dawn this month, rising about three hours before sunrise. Its magnitude dims slightly during the month from minus 4 to minus 3.9, as its angular diameter shrinks from 14.5 to 12.5 arc seconds. However, at the same time, its illuminated phase increases from 74 to 83%, which explains why the magnitude does not drop too much. Its elevation before sunrise is greatest on the 2nd of August, when Venus lies close to the open cluster M35 in Gemini. Well, finally, what about some of the highlights of the month? Well, August is a good month to find the globular cluster in Hercules and spot the double-double in Lyra. These are two very nice objects to spot with binoculars in the eastern sky well after dark this month. Two-thirds of the way up the right-hand side of the four stars that make up the keystone in the constellation of Hercules is M13, the best globular cluster visible in the northern sky. Just to the left of the bright star Vega in Lyra is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, often called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen. When observed with a telescope, each of these two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence its name. August is actually a good month to observe Neptune with a small telescope. It actually comes into opposition, that's when it's nearest to the Earth pretty well, on the 2nd of September, so it will be well placed both this month and next. With a magnitude of plus 7.9, Neptune with a disk of 3 point arc seconds across can be easily spotted in binoculars lying in the constellation Aquarius. I show both an overall chart on the night sky page and also a finder chart in detail of where it lies. It will rise to an elevation of 27 degrees when due south, which is around midnight. Given a telescope of 8 inches or greater aperture and a dark transparent mite, it should even be possible to spot its moon, Triton. The moon and Saturn. Late evening on the 2nd of August, the waxing moon will be seen to the upper right of Saturn, with Antares, the orange-red star, lying down to its lower right. Now, of course, we do have one of the year's best meteor showers this month. On the mornings of the 12th and 13th of August, look out for the Perseid meteor shower. The meteors are produced by debris from the comet Swift-Tuttle. Probably the early morning of the 12th of August will give us the best chance, if clear, of viewing the sky. But the peak is quite broad, and it's well worth observing on the nights before and after. 
Most meteors are seen looking about 50 degrees from the radiant which lies between Perseus and Cassiopeia and look up towards the zenith. This year, a gibbous moon rises before midnight, so it will be low in the sky for some time in the early hours of the 12th, so it's probably best to try and observe the Perseids as soon as it's really dark. Moonlight will hinder our view, but it should be possible to spot many meteors. Now, a rather nice event on the 16th of August, in daylight from about 0740 to 0840 BST, because the moon is going to occult Aldebaran, the orange star that lies between us and the Hyades cluster. Now, that should be visible with a telescope, but obviously keep it well away from the sun. Those times, 0740 to 0840, are for London, and they will vary somewhat across the country. In a line from Leverborough on the Isle of Harris, across to Wick, that's in northern Scotland, a grazing occultation should be seen at 0801 BST. On the 19th of August, before dawn, if it's clear, you should be able to see Venus just two degrees above a very thin, waning crescent moon. On the 25th of August, after sunset, Jupiter will lie below a thin, waxing crescent moon. And the object I've chosen to describe on the website this month, on the surface of the moon, is called the Straight Wall, or the Rupert's Rectar. It's best observed either one or two days after first quarter, so that's around the 30th of August in the evening, or a day or so before third quarter, around the 14th of August in the evening. To be honest, it's not really a wall, but a gentle scarp. And finally, as Patrick Moore has said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight. So I do hope you have some good observing this coming month. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for our Antipodean listeners, here is Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the August Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Mercury finishes its best evening appearance of the year this month. At the beginning of August, it sits low in the west after dark, just above Regulus, the brightest star in Leo, setting around 7.45. By mid-month, it will disappear from view, lost in the evening twilight as it heads back towards the sun in our skies. Jupiter is a little further north, midway up our northwestern skies. It is slowly moving below and towards the right of Spica over the course of the month. Both are quickly dropping down our evening skies, with Jupiter setting at around 11pm at the beginning of August, but by around 9.30pm at the end. Further around still, Saturn is high in the northeast after dark, with Antares above and to the left, and remains in our sky for most of the night. A waxing gibbous moon passes close to Saturn on the 3rd and 31st of the month, whilst on the evening of the 25th, a thin three-day-old crescent moon will sit just below Jupiter. It's a busy time for the moon this month. If you're an early riser, look out for a partial lunar eclipse on the morning of the 8th of August. Maximum eclipse is at 6.20am, when just under a quarter of the moon's disk will be in the shadow or umbra of the Earth. The rest of the moon will be in the penumbra, or part shadow, and therefore appear dimmer than normal. 
From Wellington, the moon sets in the west at 7.14am, a few minutes before the end of the umbral phase. On the 22nd of August, the moon will pass directly between the Earth and the sun, causing a total solar eclipse. The eclipse path will run across the United States, but unfortunately no part of it will be visible from New Zealand. The next total solar eclipse visible from our shores won't be until July 2028. Last month we looked at some of the amazing objects in Scorpius and Sagittarius, towards the centre of the Milky Way. This month we'll move along a little from our galaxy's bright centre to where it passes overhead through Centaurus, the Southern Cross, and the constellations of Carina, Vela and Puppis that make up the great ship Argo Navis. Crux, the Southern Cross, lies on its side after sunset in the southwestern sky, with the Diamond Cross and False Cross below. Above Crux are Alpha and Beta Centauri, the brightest stars in the constellation of Centaurus. Known as the Pointers, they guide our eye to Gamma Crucis, the star at the top of Crux, and help us to identify the true Southern Cross. To the right of the Pointers, and just outside the main band of the Milky Way, is the spectacular globular cluster Omega Centauri. This is by far the largest and brightest globular cluster in the Milky Way, appearing as a fuzzy star to the naked eye. With binoculars, it is an even more stunning sight, spanning almost a full degree of the sky, twice the diameter of the full moon. Whilst a small telescope will show a shimmering ball of stars, with many individual stars visible towards the outskirts. Close to Beta Crucis in the Southern Cross is a different type of star cluster, NGC 4755, also known as the Jewel Box, is an open cluster around 6,500 light-years away. It is rich and bright, with the stars showing an array of different colours, highlighted by an orange-red supergiant. At magnitude 4.2, the Jewel Box can easily be seen with the naked eye. It is dominated by an A-shaped asterism of bright stars, which is observable with binoculars, whilst even a small telescope will reveal a stunning sight. The name the Jewel Box comes from Sir John Herschel's vivid description of the cluster as a casket of variously coloured precious stones. The colours of these stars tell us how hot they are. The red stars are the coolest with temperatures around 3000 Kelvin. Yellow stars like our sun are closer to 6000 Kelvin, whilst the hottest bluest stars reach temperatures of 30,000 Kelvin or more. In order to get this hot, these stars have to use a huge amount of fuel very quickly, so they don't live very long. They live fast and they die young. The most massive live for just a few million years. The fact that NGC 4755 still contains a number of these hot blue stars tells us that it is relatively young. In fact, it is one of the youngest star clusters known, with an estimated age of just 14 million years. Just to the left is a dark patch known as the Colsack Nebula. This is a huge cloud of interstellar dust and gas some 700 light-years away. It is so thick and dense that it obscures the light from more distant stars, appearing as a darkened area against the bright backdrop of the Milky Way. Aboriginal astronomers have observed the Colsack for at least 40,000 years, whilst a Maori here in New Zealand it is known as Tepatiki, or the Flounder. Below the Colsack, at the tip of the Diamond Cross asterism in Carina, is the Theta Carina Cluster, or IC2602, an open cluster containing around 60 individual stars. At magnitude 1.9, it is the third brightest open cluster in the sky, and is often known as the Southern Pleiades, although it is still much fainter than its northern counterpart. The cluster spans around 50 arc minutes, 
around one and a half full moon diameters, so it is best viewed with binoculars or a low-powered telescope, giving a wide field of view. Around four degrees to the right of Theta Carinae is the famous NGC 3372, the Eta Carina Nebula, a huge cloud of glowing gas estimated to be around 7,500 light years away. At four times the size of the Orion Nebula, it is one of the largest nebulae of its type in our skies. With the naked eye, you'll be able to pick out the brightest central areas. But with binoculars, you should be able to see Eta Carinae itself as a golden star within the nebula. Eta Carinae is actually a system of at least two stars, which combined are around five million times more luminous than our sun. The largest has around 90 times the sun's mass and is so bright that the radiation pressure it produces is almost too strong for the gravity holding it together, causing a constant stream of material out into space. In the morning skies, Venus is now rising around 5 a.m. The moon will pass nearby on the 19th, sitting just above Venus in the northeast at sunrise. The two will move towards the north by mid-morning, providing a perfect opportunity to try and spot Venus in the daylight. With Venus sat just to the right of a thin, waning crescent moon. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now onto the feedback. So this month we've got a postcard from Russ Jenkins,、uh, which is quite close to home for me actually, because it's from the National Space Center in Leicester. Which, if you've ever had a chance to go, if you ever have a chance to go, definitely go because it's a great day out. Um, and it's got a lovely picture of the Blue Streak rocket,、um, which they actually have in the museum on loan from Liverpool, in fact. So it says, "Dear Jodcasters, thanks for all the great shows. We went to the wonderful Space Centre in Leicester. Have you been there? I have, yes, on many school trips, and thought of you all. I've been too, and Ian's been <laughs> as well.、Um, Jod on, all the best from Russ.、Um, so that was lovely, and that will go up on our wall. Thank you. And、um, for anyone else who's local, we just wanted to quickly say that."、Um, Geodesic Bank Observatory have summer exhibitions on at the moment.、Uh, one of them is、uh, a, a tour of, of space science over the last sixty years,、um, from Sputnik to supernovae. So obviously, it's a very big thing at the moment. It's the sixtieth anniversary of the level of the level telescope at Geodesic Bank Observatory,、um, and so this is a, sort of an overview of all the science and all the astronomy that's been done over these past sixty years. It's not just focused on.、Uh, On Sir Bernard Lovell's massive telescope that we've got there, so that's really interesting.、Um, so if you are local to Manchester, it'd be cool to take a look at that. So、uh, if you want to get in touch、uh, in the meantime, then you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net, on Twitter at twitter.com/jodcast, on Facebook at facebook.com/jodcast, on YouTube at youtube.com/jodcast, on Flickr at flickr.com/groups/jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Okay, so thank you very much for that, guys. Uh, uh, it's been a very interesting discussion.、Uh, yeah, hopefully not. It's been really good. Thank you for explaining everything.、Uh, well. uh, opinionated. This has been all of the opinions of the people in the room, not necessarily the Jodcast as a whole, or the, indeed the University <laughs> of Manchester, etc., etc., etc. So uh, uh, thanks again to, to Monique and to Charlie. Thanks to Dr. Katrina Jackson for the interview. The editors were Parvin Mansur, Tom Scrag, and Charlie Walker. The producer was Jake Morgan. And until next time, job done. done.